Gentlemen, as you know, is that $200 an hour? Can I tell you something as a friend? You're the shit. You really are. <laughs> oh, please. We're on the air here. You having a problem or something? Welcome into the very first, the premiere, the uh, celebratory uh, introduction that Chad and I are going to start on the Will You Stop podcast. He's Chad Baker. I'm Chris Russell. And uh, Chad, as we uh, get into today's subject, as we start to uh, make our way through the podcast world, first thing I wanted to talk about, and I just saw this on Facebook, besides having the Brooklyn Brawler do a cameo for Mother's Day, which is straight garbage, dude. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's just straight garbage. Today is the 37th anniversary of Kerry Von Erich. Well, actually, Ric Flair wrestling himself and putting the belt on Kerry Von Erich at the uh, Texas, the David Von Erich Memorial Parade of Champions 37 years ago was uh, was that title change. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think that was an era. It might be a little before you or when you were little. Um, and I was a teenager. Um, when belts, titles, championship wins, title switches, they really meant something, uh, as opposed to just being a prop nowadays. Sometimes don't you find it hard to keep up with who's a champion nowadays? Oh yeah, definitely. I always have to go and check online a lot of times because it changes so often. And there's so many belts now that it just seems kind of silly because you have, WWE has got multiple belts for championship level, for that intermediary level and, and lower. And uh, I, I think back then, you know, there's really two belts that really mattered at that time. And that was the, the NWA title. And uh, slowly but surely that WWF title, um, once it got on the, on around the waist of Hulk Hogan was really uh, kind of something that was starting to, take a little bit more of a rise there. I mean, it had been a while since Bruno had the title. You had, you had Backlund in there. You had, uh, of course, the, the short run with Sheik. But you have uh, you put it on Hogan, who took it and ran with it for several years there. Uh, and uh, it, it got to a point where that was really just maybe a step behind what they were doing with the NWA, which had so many uh, territories that it covered at that time. All right, so if that's if that's a kind of a quick uh, take on 1984, let's fast forward to 1994. That's that's our subject today on the mm-hmm. Will You Stop podcast, um, because I think 1994 is a transformative year in the business of professional wrestling that we really don't talk a lot about. And off air before we started, uh, you mentioned that you re- really weren't familiar with that year, and and a lot of people aren't because. There's, it's really, as I said, a transformative year of the past into what became the Monday Night Wars and the, uh, the Attitude Era. First, Chad, I want to go back a little bit to set up 1994, uh, because at the end of 1993, we had a lot of changes in the business that set up today, as I mentioned, like the debut of Monday Night Raw. 1993 saw the debut of Monday Night Raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, if folks remember, it was from the small Manhattan Center. 
Um, Rob Bartlett, a local disc jockey and wannabe stand-up comedian, was on the three-man announce team uh, with uh, with Vince and, and Bobby Heenan to start. Macho Man filled in later on. So, again, 93 transforms the business, as does 94. Andre the Giant passes away in 1993. The WWE Hall of Fame was created in 93. What a cash cow that's been for Vince mm-hmm. McMahon. ECW debuts in syndication. They were no longer NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling. They were trying to come in to their own, and I think maybe we'll do some podcasting about the influence of ECW one of these days. And as you mentioned about Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan actually left the World Wrestling Federation. And, Chad, that was something I don't think fans thought they'd ever see. Right. You know, you have a guy that was on top of his game for, for so long. Uh, started seeing a little bit of wear and tear. And, and as we later found out, Hogan's body, uh, that, I think that was really kind of the start of, of him having some of those injury issues that, that really prevented him from having that that bigger schedule that WWF and WWE is known for, uh, you know, and to be able to have the belt on him, you know, for the amount of time that, that he was having, it was just not going to be something that he wanted, wanted to have, or was able physically able to have anymore. And uh, he had that, uh, uh, that potential to be able to be that first breakout star uh, in Hollywood there. Uh, I, I use that term loosely. Oh, please. Will you stop? Uh, yeah, because, really uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Andre had done Princess Bride many years before that. But, I mean, you're, we're talking about somebody that was going to be in the limelight, walking the red carpet. Uh, and Hogan had that crossover appeal from the MTV era. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those guys that if you saw him walking down the street, you thought that's Hulk Hogan, you know, I mean, and, and that's the t- crossover appeal. I think that he was looking to cash in on at that time. Um, but yeah, he walked, he walked away from the sport. It wasn't like he went from WWF over to WCW. He walked away. Right. And so a lot of people seem to forget that a lot of people that maybe aren't in tune with wrestling, uh, in the way that we are. And so, um, you know, I think the last time that I really remember a whole lot about Hogan, and keep in mind, 94, I was junior going into the senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. So I was working a lot. I wasn't paying much attention to wrestling at that time. I, it, it kind of burned out with me because, you know, you had uh, the steroid trial in there. You had all kinds of other things going on, people going everywhere. Um, but I think the last last big glorifying moment that you had for Hogan uh, in WWF at that time was WrestleMania nine, where he comes out and takes the belt off Yokozuna just moments after Yoko took out Bret Hart. Uh, that that much dreaded WrestleMania nine moment <laughs> that, that we didn't need really garbage, straight um, garbage. Will you stop? Right, right. <laughs> straight garbage. So, so I think you know that was kind of the the. The, the end moment for Hulkamania in in WWE at that time. So, uh, and I say WWE, obviously that's going to be interchangeable here because, you know, that's is embranded in my head now for the last 15 years or so. Um, but yeah, exactly. You know, you have, you had Hogan leaving it and it was a turning point for the sport because uh, you had to see 
who was going to be stepping up to be that next guy? You know, Bret Hart for WWF uh, at, at that time was was wearing the belt quite a bit. They had brought Shawn Michaels up. And you knew that those two were going to be the the flag bearers for the organization, along with Undertaker, who was who was there. But, you know, traditionally big guys at that point, uh, you know, I mean, even at that point in time, tend to not necessarily get booked the way that uh, some of the uh, smaller guys that could do a lot more were at that time. And so uh, th- those three were the ones that they were starting to look to at that time. But you, you had to fill out uh, the company from there. And so they were they were it was a transition time uh, for, for WWE and a lot of question marks. And you mentioned Shawn Michaels, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so inconsistent, trying to push him as a single wrestler after two runs with the Rockers. Remember, they got fired once. Yeah, they don't know what to do with The Undertaker. What I find interesting about 94 and the WWF, the branding of the WWF in 1994 is a new generation. And so they started promoting young stars like, you know, Bob Backlund and, you know, Jerry the King Lawler and Nikolai Volkov <laughs> and, and Rick Martel and the Rock and Roll Express. My God, the Rock and Roll Ricky and Robert had a run in WWF in 1994. Vince is coming off the steroid trial. He's still, you know, waiting on the full acquittal. Jerry Jarrett has the papers in his hand to run the World Wrestling Federation if Vince goes to prison. Um, so I don't you don't know if it's going to be Memphis wrestling all over all over the place. So this new generation branding is just absolutely ridiculous. Bob Backlund has a run with the title. And of course, yes. we, we will see him lose it to Diesel in about 11 seconds. But I mean, and the chicken wing submission match with Bret Hart is absolutely farcical. You have Captain Lou Albano as part of the new generation walking around. And, <laughs> oh, please, will you stop? We talk about how transformative it was, Chad. It was really a time where, believe it or not, and people who see the polished WWE product now might not ever believe Vince didn't know where the hell this was going, or even if it would still go on after the trial. And of course we, we have this beauty of hindsight because we're doing this podcast here in 2021. And and we, we know that over the years, uh, whatever brand seems to be hot quote unquote at the time has the new generation that has all these wrestlers that are over 35 years of age. Uh, I mean, it happened with WCW at the, at the height of the Monday night wars where they had everybody that WWF had five years prior. Uh, And, you know, even nowadays, you know, with, with where, you know, the big controversy right now uh, with everything that's going on, uh, with the you know Mickey uh, Mickey James you know calling out the ageism in in current WWE mm-hmm. with you know all these guys with the belts with 40s but then you don't have any any older uh, female wrestlers in there so um, yeah you know I, I think at the time you know Vince was kind of feeling his way through trying to take a look at what he had uh, available to him you, you had to be able to bring up young guys. But at the same time, you still had to be able to have those guys that could draw in. Now, whether or not Coco Beware and Rick Martell and Nikolai Volkov were going to be the guys that were going to put butts in seats, I mean, you, you did see at that time that, uh, and that was one thing I noticed in studying up for today's episode, was 
that a lot of the venues of some of those early Raw episodes, 4,000, 6,000 seat arenas, you know, the, the Fernwood Resort right. uh, in, in the Poconos, which, yep. you know, is tragically no longer with us, so no longer an option there. But, I mean, these were places that uh, are obviously much left in the past compared to now, where uh, nowadays whenever they, they do have active crowds, uh, you know, are filling 18, 20, 22,000 seat, you know, basketball arenas and, and, and on up, you know, for the, the, uh, the pay-per-view. So, um, you have, um, at a time where, you know, the sport I think was, was still kind of hurting from all the controversy that was really at that time, whenever, you know, the word sports entertainment kind of started to get thrown around a little bit. And so I think there was some some transition there where you lost some of the, the traditional fans because, uh, you know, once again, Hogan wasn't there. But then also, you know, there was a realism to the sport because, you know, there was, you know, the steroid era, you know, and and. Anybody that has followed any sport in the last 30 years knows that steroid is kind of a, a black stain on a sport. And, and so you have, you know, a, a perfect example of that here with WWF trying to find individuals that weren't big, beefy guys, weren't, weren't going to be individuals that possibly had their name tarnished by, by steroids. And so that's why you have, you know, 90 year old Nikolai Volkov out there with his big old gut, uh, doing the, uh, the million dollar challenge against, uh, who was it? The one, two, three kid, maybe. I think. Could you stop? Yeah. And, and, and you bring up, and you bring up the steroids too. This is a time, and right. we're not just gonna, we're not just gonna cover the World Wrestling Federation as we go through our episodes of the Will You Stop podcast. Um, but, but we're just on the subject right now. A lot of folks might. Not also remember, or maybe they do if they look back, Phil Donahue, who was the king of daytime talk in those days. And oh, yes, we weren't making they weren't making people eat outrageous things or revealing who was the father or anything like that, um, had done very uh, quite a few episodes on steroids in professional wrestling. Superstar Billy Graham and Bruno San Martino, two of the biggest stars that Vince Sr., Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, ever had in the New York area. So. They get on Phil Donahue and they just blast Vince McMahon Jr. And it just adds fuel to the fire. Hulk Hogan even testified against Vince McMahon uh, in that steroid trial. I just find it interesting that, you know, one thing that I, I don't think gets talked about enough is the World Wrestling Federation never created any stars. They always took talent from smaller territories. They had the genius to repackage or come up with a new gimmick. The the WWF didn't create Mark Calloway. They just created the Undertaker gimmick. Now, Mark Calloway had a pretty successful run in WCW as Mean Mark, which is no gimmick, but he was part of the skyscrapers. And here's a big guy with a great look who can work, who can do things off the top rope. And, you know, they Vince and Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe and Bill Watts and later on Michael Hayes and Nowadays, Dean Belenko, they have a knack for seeing what can be done with somebody. That snap of the fingers where they say, this guy, this guy I can make somebody out of. But the new generation was a fail. You talk about new generation. Let's let's turn it over a little bit to WCW, because that roster in 1994 
is absolutely loaded. Chad, they got Turner money. You talk about doing bigger venues. They still weren't in the in the domes or the football stadiums yet, but they were out of the Sumter Exhibition Center where I actually saw a TV taping once. Oh, please, will you stop um, now? <laughs> where they actually asked, they, WCW would ask you to move to the other side of the arena opposite the hard camera so it would look like they were full. Will you stop? So they have gone past those days. Sure. They've, sure. Got, they've got Turner money. They withdrew from the NWA. They're going to go about it on its own. We'll talk in later podcasts about the belt confusion. But you look at the WCW roster, dude, this is the new generation. Right. And, and basically what you had was uh, you had some of the pillars there with Flair, the horsemen. Uh, you had um, just kind of looking at the list that, that you have here listed. You know, Terry Funk had been there a long time. Uh, you had Sting, who had uh, had established himself, but was still a young guy at the time. Steve Austin was uh, stunning Steve for a while, yep. uh, you know, with the the, the Hollywood Blondes. Uh, you know, there there's that sense that uh, that WCW was kind of going for the a different audience than what WWF was at that time. WWF, I think, already had that sports entertainment type of mentality that we're going to entertain the crowd. We're going to, you know, wow the crowd with the characters of the, of the sport. Whereas WCW, I think at that time still had that mentality where, you know, we're going to let wrestlers be wrestlers. And so you still had uh, some of those great matchups there. Uh, You know, you still had, you know, you had Flair and Steamboat in there. Flair and Sting had some great matches in there. You had Dusty Rhodes, uh, that that had some great matches in there through the years. So, you know, those were guys that, you know, their characters, yeah, you know, they could cut a great promo, but, you know, they weren't going to go and put on a clown outfit to go to the ring, uh, at least not yet anyway. Oh, please, will you stop? Um, and so I, I think for, for people that were more wrestling purists, uh, the people that maybe grew up on WWF but then got disillusioned with, just kind of some of the the characters that they were trying to trot out there. I think WCW was kind of a safe haven for folks that could still point at this and be like, you know what? It's still real to me because look at what these guys are doing, Uh, you know, and and they're not making a a clown show of this. Now, obviously, later on, WCW would, would start kind of copying what WWE was doing and trying some things. But, but at this time, you know, WCW was still a, um, you know, uh, packaged as a, a very nice wrestling product, uh, and and the people that went to these events, uh, they weren't disappointed by it. Yeah, I I think you make a good point there. Wrestling product, you know, I think WCW uh, always had the upper hand, and a lot of it could be Dusty. Dusty certainly takes his share of hits for the Dusty finish and and things like that. But as a booker, uh, I think Dusty was really ahead of his time by using television continually using television to build the storylines, to put your butt in a seat, whether it's a house show or uh, a pay-per-view event. Whereas the storylines on wrestling challenge or superstars didn't seem to matter so much in the WWF, unless it was something really, really major. It seemed like the WWF could just put something together at a pay-per-view and, you know, all of a sudden we have Walter Payton out there with Razor Ramon. You're like, what the hell is right. going on here? Will you stop? <laughs> 
right. But but yeah. your sports entertainment angle is, is well taken, and I think a lot of that has to do with the old um, way of thought in wrestling too. WWF was always called New York. Well, mm-hmm. we know for better or for worse, it's also the media capital of the world. Uh, for for again, for better or for worse. So whatever sure. happens in New York and the WWF. WCW is not going to get that rub. Now, when Hulk Hogan comes to WCW and then we get, you know, Shaquille O'Neal at or bash at the beach in Orlando, we get Mr. T again, or we actually wrestle outside on the beach, which was a forgettable moment in WCW history. They're at least (laughs) looking at the promotional value that Vince was always able to offer and say, hey, I want to copy that. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I, that was kind of where I was wanting to go next here is the fact that, yeah, you're right. New York, uh, WWF at that point in time had started to uh, cover overseas as well because British Bulldog was such a, a big star at, at that point in time. So, you know, anytime that they would go over to London, uh, they were selling out. And so they were, they were, kind of had those two markets there that they were really starting to pinpoint as, as the blueprint for what they would eventually do go, you know, just going global and being that brand that everybody looked at as the wrestling brand. But for a long time, you're, you're right. The WCW uh, had that NWA title that traveled around to different territories. So everybody knew them in Texas. Everybody knew them in the Carolinas. Everybody knew them in Florida. Uh, you know, WWE had the ability to be able to, to wrestle some of those wrestlers away from those different territories and, you know, add, you know, up in Minnesota with, uh, AWA, you had, uh, uh, Stampede Wrestling, but you had WCW, which kept those, kept their, their roster for the most part intact all those years. And, you, you know, it, when we talk about the early 90s, you have, have this period here where 94 is, is kind of in the middle of that time when you did have a lot of the big players really switching switch brands here. And, and so that allowed, I think, even the novice wrestling fan to really become aware of the bigger picture, you know, the, the bigger idea of the wrestling world because you had Ric Flair jumping over to WWF and the Steiners, and um, you had Hogan going to WCW along with Savage, and and uh, you know you had, of course, Nash and Hull bouncing back and forth every other year. So so you had created this awareness of, of what would become the Monday Night Wars, whereas before you watch what wrestling was on television. You didn't know that there was another brand out there. If you're a novice person that just happens to turn on uh, superstars or wrestling at the chase, you know, you, you now know that there is some competition here for these wrestlers that, that there is, you know, a, a sought after effect for having a, a Ric Flair on your roster, no matter how you use him, which I think WWF, Sorely misused Flair. You know, I, I think Flair probably would have stayed had he had a little bit more of, of, you know, well, first of all, the Hogan run. You know, you, you had to have Flair and Hogan. And I don't think, you know, I think that everybody looks back at that and at that time, 
it, it was it was a great misstep by the powers to be to make that happen. Oh, please, will you stop? So that? I don't. I'll, I'll step in right there and I'll disagree with you because they did send Flair and Hogan around the circuit mm-hmm. on, on house shows and they didn't draw. They did not draw very well. It's not, you know, styles make matches. The styles are different. Yes. Styles yeah. are so different. And everybody gives Hulk Hogan a bad rap about not learning how to wrestle. Oh, he knew how to wrestle. He knows how. Yeah. He didn't have to. Stone Cold Steve Austin knew how to wrestle. He no longer had to. That's that's right. that's the presentation, right? So they sent Flair and Hogan around the circuit. In fact, on the well, it's Peacock now, but I, and I don't know if it's up. But WWE Network used to have an old school section, and I think it's from either '92, I think late '92, in Madison Square Garden of all places, Ric Flair against Hulk Hogan. And it's terrible. It's a horrible match. So for to Flair's credit, to Vince's credit, to the booking committee's credit, which at that time even included J.J. Dillon, imagine that, they they put, they wanted Flair to work with Savage because they knew they would get a better, Flair, Flair can't just go 10 minutes and leave. Right. Hogan's right. not going to go 30. So you, you, you put Flair and Savage together, you get that kind of misstep WrestleMania in the Hoosier Dome where we have Hogan and Sid and Sid is late on his cue and it's just, just a cluster of errors, that whole WrestleMania. Right. But, you know, the Hogan Flair that we eventually get in WCW, look back on that, that's not very good. And Hogan realized that. And so he goes to the uh, powers that be at WCW and all of a sudden we see the earthquake or the avalanche. And we see Beefcake, Zodiac, Shark, Booty Man, Man with No Name, whatever the hell they were doing with Wesley at that time. Will you stop? Because Hogan needs those guys surrounding him. Exactly. Because that's the style that'll make the match. So with Hogan and WCW, finally we get the match that we wanted to see. But did we? Nobody really wanted to see that. It was a great thing for wrestling fans to say, what if? Just like, you know, what if Nolan Ryan had pitched to Ted Williams? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, well, we, we see that in hindsight. Right. And, and, and as hindsight as wrestling nerds as we are. But if, if we're a teenage fan that knows that Flair is, a, is the big name in the business and Hogan is a big name in the business. Oh, I didn't want to see we, it then. That's, yeah, you, you want to see it, it whether it's bad or not. Now, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately. Yes, I totally agree with you. Flair Savage, I mean, was 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 a great rival. That was fantastic. That's something that was played over and over again. Right. But yeah, and they were exactly right for for keeping those two apart because we saw Hogan and Flair in WCW, and it you're right, it didn't really do anything for anybody. It really didn't add to the product. No. Uh, and so, uh, you have all these guys that are more technical wrestlers. You have all the guys that are a little bit more of the heavyweight kind of throw around the ring. And, and as be, as you're able to start educating folks like a young Chad Baker at that time, <laughs> uh, you, you start seeing how the wheels turn and, and then you understand why you don't have a, a Ric Flair versus an undertaker on a regular basis, why it doesn't work like that. No. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And that was the other thing, too, when we talk about styles, Vince McMahon and, and to his dad's credit, which was what I was raised on. I was raised on the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And then sure. after moving south, it was 
wrestle Palooza every weekend, man. Southern people are crazy <laughs> for wrestling. Um, Vince Sr. brought in good workers. Vince Jr. wanted 6'5", 285. That, that, was, that was the starting point. And if you were smaller, you had to have a gimmick. Savage was not necessarily somebody who was uh, really welcomed in at the time. Vince Jr. thought he was hot, so let me get this guy. Vince Jr.'s idea, just to backtrack a little bit, when he took over the company, was I'm going to go into your territory, Chad Baker, and I'm going to take your top three guys. Then I'm going to come rent the buildings that you use, and I'm going to run these shows with the guys that your fans just saw a couple of months ago, and now I'm over. And that's how he set about taking care of some of the territories. But when we get to 1994, territory system just about done and, and and he's trying to and again you talk about hindsight if we go back to 94 there's no way we thought we'd see monday night wars there's no way that we thought we'd see the bad guy walking through the crowd and say you know who i am but you don't know why i'm here there's no way in hell we could have ever forecasted what came out of that what came out of the genius the sick genius of eric bischoff and the and the attitude era. So you take '94 as this microcosm, right? As this as this transformative year. And you look at let's go back to Ric Flair. You look at him much happier in WCW mm-hmm. because he's able to work the style of matches that he can do. He's got to get his turnbuckle flip. He's got to get his header. He's got to he's got to get his you know signature stuff in. But he doesn't have to try to maneuver six five two eighty five around the ring. Watch his matches with Vader. Those are not very good. Even though Vader was oh, sure. really pushed to the moon, the matches with Vader are not very good. If you have Flair and Steamboat every night of the week, they can give you magic. If you have Flair and Hogan, it's garbage. But if you have Hogan and Vader, then nah, it's still garbage. Oh, would you stop? And he's not having to do it 300 nights a year. Right. Not anymore at this point. No. Right, right. So, I mean, I, and and a lot was made about those schedules back then. That, that's why Nash and Hall left, you know. So you have, uh, you know, WCW where you have some of these older folks that, uh, I, I say older folks, I use that term loosely because, I mean, they obviously they were older than several of the folks that were on the, the WWE roster. Uh, not all of them, as we recently spoke of Lawler and Backlund. But you had... Um, you, know, you had guys that uh, probably had definitely a lot less tread on the tires than, let's say, a Lawler or Backlund. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how much Jerry Lawler, you know, down in uh, down in Tennessee or Kentucky or wherever his wrestling organization is, was was really, you know, where he's the one that's kind of, you know, controlling everything is really wearing the tread off of his tires as much as maybe somebody like a Ric Flair or a Dusty Rhodes. Uh, is doing, you know, bouncing back and forth between the two top promotions. But you have, uh, you know, you know, guys that, that are, are resting on their name. You know, maybe they're not going out there in, in the ring every night, but they're still able to cut good promos. You have, uh, you know, I mean, how many times do we see on the uh, the no context Ric Flair where we have uh, the four horsemen doing promos? You go out there, you cut your promo, you know, maybe you maybe you send Tully and Arn out to the ring, but then but then we're done for the evening. We can go and shower and go go to the limo and get out of here. Um so so even even a hard night in WCW didn't necessarily, you know, happen very often for these guys. No, that that's for sure. That's for sure. The the other thing with WCW though, 
and, and why I keep calling 94 a transformative year, you have, mm-hmm. you have the debut of the Harlem Heat, or at least the, the modern Harlem Heat, okay? We're, right. we're, no, long, we're no longer having uh, a Sister Sherry lead the two black men to the ring with chains. <laughs> we we kind of, <laughs> Ole Anderson thought that was a good idea at the time, and I sure, I'm sure he has his reasons for wanting that. But uh, uh, so we're done with that. So now they're repackaged. Uh, of course, Stevie Ray was called, I think, Brother Kane, and I think Booker T had some other, I forget his name, but we had, I had seen them in the old Global Wrestling Federation, yes. which had taken over the Sportatorium, which we watched on ESPN in the mm-hmm. afternoons. So the Ebony Experience gets to come to WCW, repackaged as Harlem Heat. Boom. History. You have the Nasty Boys, who a lot of people kind of laugh at, but these guys are in their prime right now. They could actually work, and they were terrific heels. I do not like baby-faced Nasty Boys. I think that's garbage. But <laughs> heel Nasty Boys are terrific. We had a very young Jean-Paul Levesque who actually wrestled on Starcade that year, who yes. we all know would become Triple H. So along with Steve Austin, along with Sting, along with Ron Simmons, who after they had broke up Doom, they're going to give Ron Simmons a, a solo shot. Rick Rude is at the top of his career. WCW is beset by injuries, poor booking, and the fact that they thought that Turner money would take them everywhere. And Chad, one thing I've always told other wrestling fans when we would talk, you got to understand that was Vince's business out of Vince's pocket. He ran it completely different than mm-hmm. somebody would in WCW who has Ted Turner money. It's two different things. Exactly. Uh, you have Vince who, as we're going to find out over the next couple of years, really has to get out of the comfort zone that, he had been in all this time. You know, you're able to build your roster the way that you had through the manipulation of of the smaller territories, as you said earlier. Right. But but now you are having to go against somebody that's just going to continue to throw money out there. You know, to be able to hire the top talent, to be able to give them a better uh, wrestling schedule, which means you know a longer career, better health over the long term. Uh, that, you know, they can come in as we will ultimately see with NWO with 20 different members. Uh, you're off the place up, get the crowd sparked. They'll never know who will be popping out of the back room. And then you're sending people home happy. So they can do that, you know, with, uh, 18,000, 22,000 people in the arena. And yeah, you know, you, you may get Hogan and Rodman or you end up, getting Scott Norton and Virgil coming out or Vincent coming out. Uh, but they, you got to see the NWO, you know, ultimately. So that's what WCW is starting to build up to. You know, you had the horsemen. Well, it, during this time, that's whenever the horsemen carousel started to, to pop around. Cause you had Arn, you had, uh, you had Tully for a little while, but then you had, I mean, you always had Rick there, but you know, you had who else in there? You had Steve McMichael in there. You had, uh, Luger in there for a while. You had Barry Windham in there for a while. So, so you're able to kind of, you know, have a little bit of a, a turnstile there. You were, you may have been able to see a horseman in action, but it may not have been one of the four horsemen. Uh, you had, uh, an interesting thing that really started happening with WCW at this time was them differentiating 
really the the top name talent with the guys that were big cards that were actually starting to dazzle a little bit. And at that time, I consider Pillman and Austin uh, be those big card guys. Stephen Regal is another one, and I I will always stand by the fact that I think Stephen Regal is going to be one of the most underrated wrestlers of this era because this guy mm-hmm. works great as a heel. Yep, and People, I don't think, appreciate him just because, you know, he, he's kind of tall, gangly, awkward, you know, he, he but, you know, his his wrestling regimen is is always top notch. This guy you know, obviously does a, a lot of, of backstage training of, of future talent. Uh, nowadays, we know that. But at that time, you know, still a young guy, still able to be able to have his, uh, you know, go out there and show what he can do. And so you, you have him that, that was terribly underutilized in WCW, and you later find out whenever he gets to WWE and he starts having his gimmick, but that's like 10 years later already uh, by the time he's, he really gets at the top of his game and starts getting recognized it for who he is. But you have these guys in the big card on WCW that, you know, for, for the wrestling purists and for fans that were really starting to get invested in the sport – really brought people in and WWE didn't really have that. They had doink, you know, they had bastion booger. They, you know, they, I mean, the, the, you know, Vince at that point in time, you know, the, the, the money wasn't there and the willingness to be able to develop talent and go out and get the right moving pieces to fit the writers that he had weren't there yet. And, and so uh, I think, you know, you're, you're talking about, about the money spent, you know, the money spent on people backstage, I think has to be key as, as much as the people that you're putting out there in the ring, because the people have to feel like it's believable. And at that point in time, WWE was WWF was starting to be a little bit on the gimmicky side. The, the guys you had slaughtered kind of doing the, you know, the, the flipping back and forth there just a couple of years prior. And now you got you have Dead Bibiasi. You don't really know what he's doing. He's he is wrestling. He's managing. He's you know he's kind of just all over the place. And keep in mind that these guys were at the time about the same age as you know what like Bobby Lashley is now, what uh, um, Brock Lesnar is now. So these guys were in the prime of their career, but yet they didn't really know kind of what they really wanted to do with them. Whereas now. WWE has a clearly defined vision as far as what they want to do with guys at that point in time of their life. And they're, they're able to excel with that. So, you know, I, I think a lot, a lot has to be invested behind the scenes and being able to get the right people there as well. All right. Just to put a punctuation mark, talking about uh, Steven Regal and behind the scenes, I, I it never gets uh, old for me to see superstar Bill Dundee, who's getting a check from WCW being on the booking committee, also getting a check as uh, Sir William, Stephen Regal's manager, uh, and the fact that they were able to take Alabama's own Bobby Eaton and make him a British blue blood. That is absolutely (laughs) fantastic booking, fantastic booking. All right, as we start to wrap up this first uh, episode, our trial episode of our Will You Stop podcast, uh, before we go, Chad, I want to, obviously, the namesake and the reason why we're calling it this uh, again, transformative year of 1994, the uh, terrifically talented, and I saw him in the ring. That's how old I am. Oh, Gor- Gorilla Monsoon, 
steps away uh, from the mic, soon to be the figurehead president of the WWF. And then we we lose him a couple of years later. Gino Morella, uh, who is from central New York, uh, out this way uh, at Ithaca College. He wrestled in the Stampede area, trained by Stu Hart, uh, was a monster heel for Bruno San Martino. When I was a kid, he was billed as being from Manchuria, which I thought was the most outrageous. You know, I didn't know he was from Willowsboro, New Jersey. I thought Manchuria. Well, well, that's why he does karate chops. Anyway, um, I I just wanted to get your take as we start to wrap up. Gorilla Monsoon retiring from the mic. How important were the ring commentary crew, the the commentary crews of that era to the product? Do you think they enhanced the product? Do you think we didn't need them? Because we certainly have a lot of interchangeable parts during that era, too. The fan Chad Baker, the teenager Chad Baker, wants to say that they carried it just because the, the product was just all over the place. But you were always guaranteed that the guys behind the mics, Grilla Monsoon with Bobby Heenan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, later on you'd had uh, you know, Piper and, and Savage in a three-man boot. Uh, those were exciting times. And, uh, of course, we go back – I mean, you're endeared to, to Gorilla Monsoon. I'm endeared to Gorilla Monsoon and, and Heenan together because, you know, that was just such a great tandem. Uh, Gorilla and uh, Jesse the Body Ventura oh, was a magic. great combo. That was great. Uh, right, right. So um, you you had you had su- such great voices at that time. And, you know, I, I think that that really was a part of the product. That if you go see the live event, obviously you don't get that. So, so being able to watch it on television is a big thing. You, you feel so, so much for Gorilla. That year, he loses a son, uh, who is uh, you know, Joey Morella, the referee, right? Uh, you know, bright, promising future. As, as I mean, he he could have been Hebner, you know, at this point in time. Sure. Um, you know, loses him in, in the auto accident. And, uh, you have, and Gorilla's not, not young at this point anymore. You know, he, he's, you know, kind of getting up there a little bit. Uh, you want to be able to see, you know, Vince, I think probably had a vision. And, and so by, by kind of phasing Gorilla out, putting Vince kind of there as a, the play by play guy for, for many years, um, that maybe Vince saw that that was his way of being able to, to help promote that product. Uh, and as we would later see, you know, it it kind of culminated and where it ended up with was the Austin McMahon era. So, you know, I mean, for for that part in time to be able to build up to that and have, I mean, obviously they didn't have the foresight to see that at that time. But, uh, you know, looking back on it, you know, it ended up being the right thing. But but you're exactly right. Gorilla Monsoon. I, I think was a standard bear for um, wrestling play-by-play at, at that time. You know, Jim Ross, uh, it goes Gorilla Monsoon, Jim Ross, and then I think everybody else, you know, can can take a number after that. Um, you know, as much as I love Shivoni, you know, I, I mean, he's he's behind those two guys. So, um, I, plus I think of Shivoni as a backstage guy anyway. He's he's always always was great with the bike with uh, with. Flair and the Horsemen and with Dusty and whatnot, but but yeah, Gorilla, um, you know, to to be uh, the the guy with the mic and have that presence, but then also the comedic timing. You know, I mean, he he knew when he had to be serious, 
and was able to uh, play well with the guy that wasn't necessarily always serious. Uh, and uh, it, it worked out great. Will you stop? Gorilla Monsoon will always be remembered by me uh, for those Jesse Ventura uh, days, for trying to get Pat Patterson to uh, speak better English uh, on the mic, if you ever go back, and actually the night that Hogan uh, beats uh, the Iron Sheik in Madison Square Garden to start Hokomania, Pat Patterson is on the mic with uh, Gorilla Monsoon, and it is hilarious. Gorilla Monsoon also responsible for bringing sports entertainment to us, because if there was no Gorilla Monsoon, Muhammad Ali does not get into the ring, and they don't set up the fight with Antonio Inoki, and so he's involved in so many aspects. And I'm do I am glad as we wrap up, Chad. You mentioned Tony Schiavone. I challenge anyone. 1994, after Bobby Heenan comes to WCW, Shivani and Heenan are very, very good and are very underrated um, together. I, I would put them kind of where JR and the King are rated for uh, folks nowadays as far as nostalgia. Shivani working with Bobby Heenan, Shivani working with Jesse Ventura, Gordon Soley working with Bobby Heenan. Gordon, I mean, it was just interchangeable parts. But our namesake right. here on the Will You Stop podcast, Gorilla Monsoon, will will always be remembered. All right, man. Well, that's a that's a wrap for our first episode. Maybe we'll do more of 1994, 1993, 2015. Who knows? We can go anywhere we want with this. Uh, hopefully, uh, anybody that chooses to listen. Uh, has we're going to dance fun. around like we're Alexander Wright. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Dude. Oh, let's, let's not do that. Maybe Disco Fever. We'll, we'll, we'll do some Disco Inferno dancing. We'll do that. But. There we go. Stop.